Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, it's Jacob and Lali in the studio today um, for another week of Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, and it's also the grand final public holiday, <laughs> um, which I almost for- I actually forgot it was actually a public holiday until I went to the train station and realised there was no one there. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, and then I rode my bike all the way because the train um, timetables were different. So you're not a footy, footy fan, uh, Jacob, like me. Yeah, well, I, I think. Oh, wait, before I actually wanted to mention something interesting, just an interesting kind of observation. Um, but before, before that, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast um, to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, and that, you know, this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Now, I think an interesting thing, I guess. Um, few political things actually about the grand final icing um, is is basically it's a it's a, it's all of this sort of funny thing I've observed but Collingwood um, interestingly enough always this team that is considered like you know the most kind of hated team in the AFL and there's usually all these sort of stereotypes about you know Collingwood fans and actually I always feel that those stereotypes are always kind of um, prejudiced um, quite prejudiced in a sense that it's sort of like there's always this sort of – because the Co- Collingwood is a team that really does have a strong working-class supporter base. And so it is prejudiced as, you know, being, you know, you know the team that's supported by Bogans, you know, the low lives, et cetera, <laughs> um, compared to, you know, the Carlton Blues or the Melbourne Demons, which are always sort of like, you know – since more of the teams middle are privileged, yeah. middle class, upper class, so <laughs> teams are privileged. So I think that's sort of an uh, yeah. uh, interesting thing. Although that said, I mean, the the president of the Collingwood, um, any guy, doesn't really give the best image of uh, of Collingwood in itself. But I think one of the things as well is now that um, since Collingwood is playing against West Coast, which is a team from another state. Now there's all this sort of question of state nationalism coming course, about because course, ev- so course. everyone now. Collingwood is considered like the most hated team in the AFL. Really? Now all the people, well, one of the most hated teams in the AFL, um, and then now, but everyone's get a barrack for the um, for for Collingwood in the event because it's state nationalism. We got to stand up for our state against the um, the Western Australia. I find that really hilarious. <laughs> so that's that's some of the politics I think. Well, some of the politics I've observed that's sort of happening around this sort of grand final. Um, that's going to happen tomorrow, and of course, it's. Um, I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that interesting enough, because um, I, I just saw some campaigning about this, um, is the state Liberal government um, or the Liberal opposition uh, actually um, they actually want to um, abolish this public holiday we have right now. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I'm not into footy, but I will be against that. <laughs> <laughs> 
and their reasoning is it's a waste of money to have the grand final eve um, and it's a waste of our taxpayer money despite the fact that, you know, it's actually good for workers and yes, it's it good is. for people that we have a public holiday, especially before a big event like the grand final that, you know, the majority of people, you know, watch with their families, friends, etc. It's time to socialise, time to connect with the community, you know. And there's a study that says that people who are 40 shouldn't work more than three days but with, um, well, they didn't say full wages. I'd say they should be given full wages regardless. Mm. You know, it, it, it's this work thing is, is such a big issue. You know, work work till you die, work till you, you're 70. Work is the god for the, all, all the employers, of course. And um, workers need to rest. Look mm. at the mental health issues. And, and I mean, I could go on, but I won't. Yeah. Um, now, you know, of a more, of a more important one. story um, is the current kind of crisis that's um, engulfing um, ABC at the moment. Oh, God, yes. Um, so quite a lot has happened in the past week. So only a week ago, or was it maybe four? Yeah, it was actually a week Monday. ago. Oh, the, Monday. On Monday, Monday. Um, yeah. Michelle Guffrey um, was sacked. Yeah. Um, and I think, Mel, what was Michelle Guffrey's role again in the ABC? She was like a... She, was a, she, was, well, she wasn't the, the chairperson. She was the director or something. Yeah, she was a director of some kind. Now, there was... Now, they saw this whole scandal around um, how the fact that there was no real kind of reason given on why Michelle Guffrey um, was sacked... Um, you know, and of course there was a lot of pressure on the ABC chairman, um, Justin Milne, um, to give a particular reason. Um, but of course he, you know, and this is quoting from this, um, really good new, new Matilda article written by Ben Eltham on, on this whole thing. Um, you know, the best he could kind of manage was, you know, a series of sort of, you know, vague kind of responses. You know, her leadership style was not the leadership style to carry the organisation forward. That those kind of things, and of course, you know, you know, he then mentioned some mysterious Project Jetstream, uh, you know, a little known digital content database. And of course, he cited that well, Michelle Guffrey was opposed to that. Therefore, but of course, um, now, you know, one of the things. Um, and there were some staff that, you know, welcomed her, um, her departure so on. But then, of course, there was – what happened next was there – and this sort of all um, – where, where it's all engulfed into the bit of chaos right now – is there was some explosive kind of – there were sort of revelations that emerged about Milne's behaviour as chairman, most notably that he had urged Guffrey to sack um, ABC business journalist Emma Alberici, Alberici after she wrote an article critical of the coalition's now-abandoned company tax cuts. And of course, and hang on, before you, you move on from there, the reason they became very um, irate, or the chairperson became very irate, which she hasn't actually admitted to, is that uh, one of his companies didn't pay the tax. Mm. And uh, he's a friend of um, our ex-prime minister. So all that rolled into the, the, the scenario. It, it's a quite a mix of toxic relationships and you find the board is all the whole every member of the board is appointed by the government hmm. uh, apparently because it's um, taxpayer payer funded but the fact is they need to elect the board members that's what they should have at the moment they're all appointed they're all company executives of hmm. some kind so they're all from the, the rich ruling class mob hmm. not and one of them is from the national party hmm. so you find that the whole board is skewed 
towards the employer mentality, mm. anti-working class mentality. Mm. That is why they do weird things like they they gave so much. Um, uh, you know, a space for people like Cottrell, and they also did uh, uh, an interview with this guy Faraj, uh, the Nigel Farage. Yeah, yes. yes, it's just ridiculous. You know, well, why I think it was um, giving- Bannon that was probably the most um, notable. Um, sort of far right yes. figure that they interviewed, which was it's for four corners, yeah. And it's it, it's just a, a a push by the right within the ABC or wanting so called balance. Here they mm. want balance. They, you 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 interview the extreme right, then you then you go ahead and interview the extreme left, which is you know socialist alliance, um, a social alternative, any of those those left groups. So you need to get that balance right. But they they classify for the convenience greens to be the left. So they go to the greens, which absolutely mm. Well is, even is even then I'd I'd say that even the Greens don't necessarily get much of a platform. No they don't. They don't. Um, yeah. So and- the, the that right wing um, slant Ooh. of the ABC is because of the composition of the board, yeah. which is uh, nominated, appointed by the board. So mm. that becomes a very right wing group, um, yep. which governs everything ABC does. And then, okay, so then going on to this story, so this when this whole thing about Emma Agobi, um, Alberici, Alberici um, broke out. Um, by this happened all on Wednesday evening. The whole national broadcaster was basically in chaos um, no, because no. you know staff. There were staff. Um, the whole staff of ABC were at stop work meetings, calling for Mills' resignation. And they were all inside the building. Um, and you know there was a there was a tweet that kind of came out of um, of a union member that said, "This is like the biggest turnout to a union movement I've seen in a decade." And of course, there were also some interesting stories um, that emerged that you know Milne had tried to prevent the ABC Music Network Triple J from moving their flagship Hottest 100 competition away from the date of Australia Day. That's and, right. And That's it also, J. Oh, uh, yeah, God. I had actually, uh, I, I must be really dumb, but I actually had no idea Triple J was actually part of the ABC. It is. It is. It yeah, is. but um. I don't actually listen to Triple J that much, but this is the first time I've heard of that. Well, and, you've been educated. <laughs> and um, he had also pressured ABC executives over the performance of political journalist um, a- Andrew Probin, radio host John Fain, and TV comedy presenter Tom Ballard. But, of course, yeah. So now he's effectively, um, at this point, as far as I know, he has resigned. Uh, or, yes, he has. Um, in, he, in yesterday. The, in the process. Well, yes. Yeah, so he's resigned yesterday. And so now... Now it's sort of like, kind of what next, really for the for yeah, ABC. Two, two two senior positions vacant, and they have to appoint because the board cannot meet without the chairperson. It, it's it's unconstitutional for the board to meet without the mm. chairperson, although they did um, when they were making a decision about what's happening with uh, the chairperson, but with his permission. Mm. Um, so the question now is for the government to quickly appoint two people in the interim, mm. and it'll take months for them to advertise and recruit people to mm. those two positions. But they should open up the board. Why aren't they elected people? There's one staff representative and one person from the National Party. And before we even had, I think, Kruger from the Liberal Party on it. You know? mm. So they're, they're political appointments of political people to suit the government. So mm. is this a government agenda? Yes, it is funded by a taxpayer, but it's supposed to be editorially editorially um, independent. Mm. So for that, you need people's input. There is no, there are no ordinary people, teachers, nurses, you know, workers on on the ground, union represent. Why don't they have a union person mm. on there? Yeah, I think those are all you good know? questions to ask. But I guess <clears> one <throat> of the um, one of the issues I think that's going to arise out of this is um, is it raises some questions about 
ABC is a public broadcaster and to the extent that, you know, the government can actually interfere with the operations of something like um, the ABC is incredibly problematic. And, of course, the whole existence of ABC was actually something or any public broadcaster was actually something we fought for and we had to fight for the right to have. Um, And also, I guess, one of the issues I also think as well is um, there's a lot of of, um, pressure on – well, there's a lot of – Political, a, a political force looking to try and attempt to privatise ABC or oh, to yeah, sell it off, yeah. um, which I think we should be fighting against for all the problems that a, the ABC have. Um, and I guess in terms of like, you know, the sta- the standards of bias and, you know, DVD, even with all this, um, ABC is probably still less problematic as a media source than, say, the Murdoch press. Of course. Um, True. And it's, um, and it's interesting enough that, you know, the coalition government always likes to accuse um, the ABC of, you know, left-wing bias, bias yes. or it's a, it's a communist station. John Fain. Oh, he's, not, he's not left-wing at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... But you know, Emma Alberici was one of the best. Yeah, but a- somehow amazing journalist she she is. But know? somehow there's no um there's not that this same level of scrutiny put towards the Murdoch press um from the right. But I think the reason why is because the um the Murdoch press ultimately just supports what the right want to say anyway. So yeah, of course they would have no problem yeah. with that. But the other thing we we remember is that the Greens and the ALP are pushing for a Senate inquiry. And that has been uh, slammed as a political move to um you know put forward their own political agenda. But the interesting thing is even Cory Bernardi is open to um looking at supporting it uh, and he expressed that, but he wants to wait for the inquiry, the government inquiry, inquiry into its board that it appointed to the ABC. So the, that's uh, sort of says it all, I reckon. But we'll wait and see what comes out of it. But the other, the other couple of bits of news I wanted to bring um, to the fore here before we ring um, Ronnie. Oh no, we'll, we'll play. Actually, we didn't tell the, the listeners what we're going to do today. Okay. Same. Now we we have. Two interviews. One is uh, Ronnie Carini, who is a spokesperson for the West Papuan community here. And uh, there have been uh, some arrests and even the um, TNI, the Tantra Nagara Indonesia, the military force has been called in to, to arrest students who, who are protesting um, from the liberation movement of West Papua, United Liberation Movement. So he'll talk about that. And uh, we also have an interview that I recorded just uh, yesterday or day before yesterday with uh, Paushali Bashak, who's a activist in the LGBTQI community in India. And she works between Mumbai and Kolkata. And she um, uh, talks about the fact that, well, some, there was some news, but minimum news, the fact that India has decriminalized homosexuality and activities relating to the LGBT community um, on the 6th of September. And this was done by the Supreme Court of India, which means that's the highest court they can go to and there's, there's no appeals on that one. Um, so that's happened in the theocracy where the Modi government has um, has been in full control. So we'll listen to that first in, in a few minutes. Um, so... I just want to bring bring people's attention to another fact. Of course, we didn't talk about Kavanaugh. We should talk about that later on. Um, but the one snippet I wanted to um, slip in here is uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn actually was awarded the International Peace Prize in Geneva a few mm-hmm. days ago. And um, the Peace Prize actually is a... Um, uh, is, is, is a, a Nobel Prize winner... Um, 
actually set up this this peace prize in uh, he won the prize in 19 uh, his name is Sean McBride in 1974 he won the Nobel prize for peace and he set this um, international peace prize up and um, every year someone gets it and people like Noam Chomsky never have been awarded this and Coburn was given that this year and that's not a not a not a peek in any any news um, media about the fact that he actually done this hmm. he's received this and you know it it also tells you they talk about um, 10 Downing Street and Theresa May, blah, blah, blah. But they don't talk about Jeremy Corbyn making such a huge mm. um, game. Well, I think, um, <clears throat> well, I think um, in terms of um, UK politics, there's actually quite a lot of stuff. I mean, there was just a conference that happened called the World Transformed Conference, which was like, sort of like this big conference. And one of our presenter, former presenters, Dennis, um, went to that conference. Yeah, yeah. So we might um, interview him um you know, sometime should, next week should. about that conference. But there was also the Labor Party conference and some notable things that came out of it was um, there was a, a strong um, contention of Palest- um, support for Palestine, which yes. was good yes. um, in the light of all this sort of anti-Semitic kind of smears against Corbyn. Yeah. And Jeremy Corbyn also gave a really good speech, or so I've heard. I've watched bits of it. Um, but, you know, it was really articulated, strong kind of socialist politics. Um and I guess one of the other interesting things is there's also the possibility of an early snap election as early yes, as November yes. in the UK. This so there's going to be lots of stuff happening yeah, there. Let's talk more about that. <laughs> okay, welcome back. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR 555 on your AM dial. And this is Green Left Weekly Radio or Friday Breakfast. Now... I, I mentioned an interview with uh, with Pashali Basak from Kolkata in India about the gains of the LGBTI community, and here's the interview that I did with her a couple of days ago. Pashali Basak is a political activist and has been working with the feminist and queer collectives forums for the last seven years. She's worked with SAPO for the Equality, a queer feminist LGBTQ collective, and organizations in Kolkata or Kolkata and Forum Against Oppression of Women, FAOW, which is an autonomous feminist collective and campaign group in Bombay or Mumbai. Her efforts have been to connect with different social, political and people's movements and develop a intersectional understanding and practice of politics. She is a research scholar at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. She also contributes to a online political magazine called Countercurrents. And if you're interested, you can look it up um, in the web. It's countercurrents.org.au. Now, let's have a chat to Parshali. Welcome to 3CR, Parshali. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. This is a great article you've written in, in the... Um, Countercurrents uh, magazine. At least that's where I read it. I'm sure it's, it was also published in India Times as well. I think. Uh, yeah, it was published in Countercurrents. Yep. And yeah. Okay. There's something in the Indian Express also. Yes. Yes, I noticed. Yeah, yeah, which is great. At least a lot of exposure in the media, which is fantastic. But the first question I want to put to you is the LGBTQI, and you've got. KHA, which I haven't heard of in Australia as yet. You, uh, I would like you to talk about that. Um, how did this community um, get this victory in, in a country that's a, a, actually a theocracy since especially Modi has taken over? 
Yeah, you see, Lalita. First of uh, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, making this opportunity to talk to a very different audience who perhaps have only chance of uh, having news from India from the mass media most. Mm, hardly, uh, hardly, I have to say. But keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so actually, the the LGBTIQ organizing and movement, and uh, it has started quite like it's three decades now in the Indian context. and uh, it has been whether whether the right wing uh, government whether the congress government whether any other government it has been going on in its own pace it's uh, uh, connecting with other movements and struggles also so it's not actually the government here coincidentally is again the right wing government now and the modi government as you see it uh and in its definitely in its uh, fascist theocratic form and many other whatever however we describe it uh but i think it was mainly the the pace of the movement the way it uh, scaled especially the campaigns around 377 that has happened in the last 10 years starting from 2009 Okay so uh, section 377 of IPC is uh, is uh, is a colonial law that is there since uh, the British government in 18 uh, 1860s uh, had come up with many other uh, colonial laws like the Beggary Act or tri- tri- Criminal Tribes Act and many other acts so sodomy was criminalized under this law and uh, it has remained in that condition with uh, not much of amendments till now uh, when it was and so in i think in late 2000 uh, the nas foundation win delhi which is a lawyers uh, collective had filed a writ petition against this uh, 377 in ipc and from there the legal campaign around it started and uh, the lgbtiq organizing which has been there uh, through different groups networks forums uh, communities has also mobilized itself around the legal campaign apart from many other mobilizations asking for demands and rights uh, of the community so that is how the 377 campaign started but while the while the delhi high court actually read down the decision that was again a very actually that was much of a surprising and a uh, thing because just after the red petition it got uh, read down but only by the delhi high court and then the matter went to supreme court and in 2013 the supreme court again reinstated the uh, ipc 377 saying that obviously the indian culture the indian uh, society is not ready for uh decriminalization of uh, unnatural sexual acts and uh, I, so ipc 377 actually talks of any carnal uh, intercourse sexual intercourse that is non penovaginal in nature is unnatural so and in that case it is not only problematic for the lgbt community but it actually uh, criminalizes any sexual act that is non penovaginal in nature so basically in a way also criminalizing uh, any any sexual act that is non reproductive so in a way only sanctioning marriage only sanctioning marriage and reproduction uh, as the legitimized relationships heterosexual relationships heterosexual yeah le- le- legitimized relationships so mm. 
yeah so in that way definitely uh, the and and that from 2013 also the campaign actually resumed in a very different form actually we got a very good response in a way this decriminalization that happened in 2013 was in a way a boon for lgbtiq movement because there was a lot of response from the student community from women's movement from different other social movements and a kind of alliance building uh conversations across social movements happened on gender sexuality lgbtiq rights and different issues uh which actually strengthened uh the uh, community support as well as the movement in general i guess and, i guess uh, i guess it says yeah. or showed them that victory is possible yeah exactly mm, so it strengthened so, that um that campaigns which is fantastic So um okay so they the 19 uh, 2013 decision was um later reversed by the high court and then the supreme court then decriminalized um the 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 uh, criminality of the LGBTQI Q I K H A in India. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell me what the K H A is. So K H A is uh, Koti K- Hijra and asexual. I don't think asexual comes in in the LGBTIQ uh, soup that much. Yeah. But that is how we are using it right now here. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. And Koti. Yeah. Okay. Um. So now that they have won this right. what does it actually uh, mean for the community because um in australia for example you might have been um you know uh, privy to some of the activities here and how the same sex marriage was um, uh, was won through a referendum over 60% voted for this and uh, it it's become law now so gay people can or transgender people can can uh, mm-hmm. can get married and i mm-hmm. i know in your article you're saying you know it's it's um maybe too soon to start fighting for that um so what what do you think will happen from now in terms of um getting further rights um similar to the heterosexual community how far mm-hmm. do you think the the lgbtqiqha community can go yeah actually you know it's it's a very interesting uh, interesting and very complex scenario i think in case of india because the marriage rights uh, the marriage laws or uh, the civil laws that are there sanctioning uh, civil rights are fractured in uh, so we have the hindu marriage act mm-hmm. it's very religion centric yes of course uh, and uh, uh, we have the personal laws uh, the muslim personal laws christian personal laws uh, parsi personal laws yep. uh, and hindu marriage act and then special marriage act so the so this these are the ways so special marriage act actually gives right to any individual Hmm. uh ac- across religion to uh, marry and that can actually we in some of the feminist groups here you know feminist and queer feminist groups here have been actually interacting with law commission and we have submitted some reports to bring changes in the special marriage act itself so that it can also accommodate trans community and uh, lgbtiq community so people who want marriage rights yep. can actually enter through the uh can secure that through the special marriage act but whereas so but there are many people who actually do not want to may not want to marry and may want civil partnership so marriage uh, marriage acts also have come through certain social cultural 
uh, stereotypes and carrying certain social cultural tradition uh, concepts and beliefs so that is how acts like laws also get formed right so that is where we are also trying to see if civil partnership can be another uh, form uh, of law where actually uh, lgbtiq people and definitely also heterosexual uh, pe- people can also access that law and which can be something different from the marriage laws because marriage laws uh, has a lot of uh, has been quite discriminatory in many ways and the women's movement have been fighting here for uh, the discriminations within the marriage laws and certain kinds of amendments have come through the years Hmm. so those are the processes happening at the ground level but uh, yeah I, uh, as the i think uh, i don't know whether it's there in the international news but bjp government here made it very clear when the matter was going on in the court with 377 matter that yes uh, it's okay if you give a pos- positive judgment but we have to like we can't uh, give marriage rights or other civil rights at one go and we need to be very slow and see how the society changes and what the society wants and here i actually also like to point out the present debates on triple talaq and ucc that is going on in uh, yes. in the national forum mm. between the courts and the different uh, communities so the muslim women's rights group has been fighting against the triple talaq that is uh, very much into the personal islamic laws uh, here and uh, that has been that has also been uh, so triple talaq is criminal now Uni- unilateral triple talaq is criminal now that's according good. to supreme court that's good uh, yeah but uh, recently again uh, uh, there was a criminalization of uh, triple talaq uh, that was passed that is being passed as ordinance in the parliament so which means that uh, so actually to so there's a kind of punishment uh, order and punishment that is being uh, brought in uh, through some groups and being uh, fought for and uh, they are saying to even to legalize and in practice to you know there's a certain kind of atmosphere where certain uh, groups muslim women's groups whenever they want uh, they are fighting there are other religious fundamentalist groups um definitely muslim fundamentalist groups whom they have to fight against so the maulana or the qazis or the imams within the country they are not def- definitely happy with the with the intervention in personal laws and even with the further criminalization of triple talaq that is happening right now so there's a lot of debates going on whether there should be criminalization of triple talaq Hmm. or even just a, only a, a law that triple talaq is not accepted by by the constitution and by the uh, supreme court is enough so these kinds of pros and cons uh, are going on so hmm. it, uh, there are a lot of uh, i mean so that is where so these are this is the atmosphere in which also civil rights of the lgbtiq people in case of marriage property inheritance uh, adoption etc comes up hmm. it's it's a quite a complex issue i guess that will be sorted out so let's spend a bit of time on the political side of this this battle or multifaceted bo- uh, battle really um it, it, it you talk about intersectional understanding of uh, understanding and the practice of politics so how how do you think Uh, intersectional uh, approach to this issue is going to be helpful because in Australia, once the marriage law was um, uh, implemented, 
we haven't mm-hmm. heard or, or have any campaigns around how they can now uh, connect with other uh, oppressed groups and, and fight with them for their rights as well. It has just all gone all quiet. Um, now, mm-hmm. how do you see this, this uh, um, you know, panning out in India? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think two, three major points that comes up uh, here is one is uh, who is the queer person or who is the trans person. So the queer person or trans person are not only uh, there are different kind of locations from where they come from. Of course. So the uh, the urban educated queer with certain privilege, different pri- privileges can access law, can access everything with much easy, smooth processes than people. And we have been seeing that how how uh, marginalizations happen in the, uh, because of the different marginal identities that people come from. So somewhere, uh, and law hasn't been a very, I mean, just the uh, inscription or the establishment of law has not proved enough that it uh, per the rights percolate down to the, you know, the uh, communities everywhere. And Mm. also the question of justice is there. Mm. So the access to freedom, equality, so how it, how, how uh, maybe a Dalit queer woman or a Muslim queer woman has access to law and how maybe a queer Hindu upper caste woman have access to law is totally different. The way it happens. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, uh, so somewhere uh, the need is definitely uh, to work at, you know, very different uh, geographical. So across geographies and uh, we, even in the remote areas where uh, it's very difficult uh, to for people to get access to. Uh, and the I think the some of the very larger structural questions that uh, today India faces are Things uh, like basic things like education, uh, livelihood, and these opportunities, education, health, livelihood, and these are things that are so, I, I mean, the the way uh, India's economic growth is counted in terms of GDP or GNP, it doesn't reflect and it doesn't actually manifest at the level of people. So people actually do not have access to livelihood after the Nalsa verdict. Uh, that is the right to uh, self-determination of gender that came up in 2014. Uh, th- that is the transgender people are now recognized citizens of the country, even before 377 was read down and repealed. But the transgender people now do not, I mean, the main, one of the major issue is that they do not have any right to, uh, I mean, they do not have any access to good livelihood options. Mm. They are there are so many transgender sex workers uh, in the country and the uh, government is now uh, taking a different uh, approach to the anti-trafficking law and in a way repressing uh, sex workers and making it more difficult for sex workers to, you know, work yep. uh, in different areas. There are so the kind of uh, surveillance that happens, the kind of uh, attacks by the law ma- machinery that sex workers, uh, whether in the city or in other uh, geographical nodes, rural area, go through, are like it's like humongous. Like people, but in, in the same, uh, the same government is saying that the transgender can uh, actually will have uh, different recourse to livelihoods, but there is no policy, no scheme, no initiative taken by this government 
to uh, see that how the actually the marginalized population get access to proper education proper health system and have recourse to livelihood mm. so it's it's actually a very yeah so that is where that is those are the levels where we have to start working uh, and keep our demands like uh, demands on and be resilient to yeah. uh, whatever uh, yeah yeah in the end the bourgeois law is a very blunt instrument to address such complex social issues isn't it so the fight has to go on and yes. and a a, a um, yes. intersectional approach is the only way you can defeat the system in um, mistreating yeah. these people not giving them the democratic rights and so on and look you guys have a may uh, achieved an enormous victory which is not celebrated anywhere else in the world they've just totally ignored it mm-hmm. um it's it's sad to see that so <laughs> we in the community radio want to to you know make sure that people hear about it um and the fact that you know yes, the neighboring country malaysia just uh, the prime minister new new government has just said there's no way they will give the lgbtqi community any rights um so it's it's mm. a whole mm. different ball game there so that that's a good, the really good mm. example in one of the largest democracies for what it's worth or you know how they interpret democracy mm-hmm. that you you've um, won as such a victory and and hats off to you and thank you for talking to us thanks a lot dadita yeah okay it was a pleasure okay and welcome back to green left um, radio and that was uh, paushali basak from kolkata talking about the plight of the um, lgbtqi community which has also has k and a uh, attached to it, which is a, a rather local um group of people uh, perhaps they are here too i don't know but you know at least uh, we got a, a, a few more extensions there now she talked about the ipc which is uh, which refers to the indian penal code um which came out of the colonial colonial era and the repression the repressing oppressing um laws were um, actually a reflection and and come historically comes from the the british laws established during colonial era so that's a good thing that was overturned so thanks to pashali um we shall move on to some good news actually another more good news that hmm. that was really good news that india had has done yep. what it has done 6th of september and and this is another victory the fair work commission apparently has um um sought to end a long running dispute between the health workers union the hwu and dorovich pathology um wages uh, are set to rise by 20% and um allowances by up to 30% which is uh, no minor victory although it's a, a fairly small workforce so september 13 determination also um this this decision also states that workers will receive payback dating to July 2017 another 2.5% wage rise in 12 months time the victory comes after nearly 2 years of struggle which um which is amazing because we usually talk about um EBAs that are stunted and that are being um uh, basically um put on hold by employers around the country We've run many stories about such uh, struggles where uh, i think the the uh, workers from alcoa or it's it's always where the aba is being held back because of the employers not wanting to um agree to some of the you know rightful uh, demands of the workers but this one has has turned out to be quite a nice victory and um so daniel andrews it it 
it actually um, involved the Daniel Andrews state labor government demanding an end to the industrial action and a sluggish um, Fair Work Commission taking a marathon nine months to determine the matter. The final determination will be issued later in September. So the union describing the result as a historic win, which it is, given the stories we've run. And it, um, the secretary, uh, Diana Asma, said, make no mistakes, um, that the members actually mm. won this and they fought hard for it. The the victory has meant that you know it it's, it gives courage to other workers around and unions around. Um, it's, it's a good example of of how you can um, win if you you stick to it. So the case highlights, I guess, two things. There's one is that workers, if they stick together. Um, it's always been the case, as, as we always say, if you don't fight, you lose. And you, you touch one, you touch everyone, basically. Um, so the laws um, um, are broken. And, and often you've heard the slogan as well, you know, we, we, we need to fix the law, the, the industrial laws, because they are broken. And we will talk a little bit more about that. Um, next week with um, Daniel Wallace, who's uh, Secretary of mm. the Hunter Workers, which is a Newcastle Old Trades Hall, um, about how the law is broken and why he has resigned. Um, and um, the reason he gave is uh, the ALP's decision to support the TPP. So that's a major story coming up next week, folks, if you are listening. Um, that that'll that'll whet your appetite about um, what to expect. So we are going to now call on our Ronnie Carini to tell us more about what's happening in the um, West Papuan sector of occupied uh, West, uh, West Papuan sector in the Indonesian archipelago, so so called. Um, apparently, there was um, um, arrest. There were arrests of twelve people uh, uh, in Abe in the wave of uh, peaceful actions that were happening around West Papua uh, a few days ago. And it was, it was held in, uh, as an act of solidarity to support the government of uh, Vanuatu in their ongoing commitment to uphold West Papua's right to self-determination. And as we've interviewed some um, West Papuan reps in the past, and uh, you know that um, they have been um, uh, very... Uh, very, very hardworking people. They've gone to the South Pacific Forum. They went to the Caribbean Forum and um, so on to, to seek support for their independence. And so this this um, peaceful actions were seen as a threat by Indonesia that, that sent in um, the TI, the Tantra Nagara Indonesia, um, which is actually the um, military. And, of course, the police were there too. So let's talk to Ronnie. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Lalita. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a bit exhausted um, from the few days of a lot of monitoring and advocacy. Yes, I can um, imagine. Especially back to West Papua. And, yeah, thank you. And But I think it is rewarding in a sense that, um, as you pointed out, that um, just to come out and peacefully expressing political views and just exercising freedom of expression, um, it's... In West Papua, there is no such thing as um, democracy. No. Um, Indonesian military and the police don't see that um, you have the right to exercise those uh, basic, um, you know, human rights. Um, 
uh, exercise to express those views and um, just to assemble or even yeah. So the, what what how what? I don't understand why the the Indonesian government is actually sending the TNI, the the, the military, against a peaceful action. I just find that bizarre and really over the top reaction. Yeah, it is very interesting, as you pointed out just earlier, um, about the since the ULMWP mm. or United Liberation Movement for West Papua has come together, and it is a unified body, and it it is also a representative body that is representing the diverse seven regional area in West Papua or tribal area in West Papua and bringing forth these um, voices of the people at the regional and global fora. And we are seeing a massive increase in response to the diplomatic efforts that the ULMWP leaders are engaging, as um, pointed out earlier, in, at the African-Caribbean Pacific Forum, at the sub-regional uh, forum such as the Melanesian Spearhead Group Forum, which ULMWP is an observer. Mm. And that in itself is given a recognition of the West Papuan people to be able to sit face-to-face equally across the table with Indonesia, who has got the associate membership, and they don't like that. And so the reaction to that is increasing more military presence to suppress freedom of expression or assembly. And so just this week alone, um, in the lead-up to the UN General Assembly, that 73rd session, Vanuatu has been very staunch and very um, um, very much taking the leadership in the region to bring forth the issue of um, self-determination. And here as well, I just want to point out that the issue of decolonization and self-determination in the Pacific is still very much alive because of the cases of Kanaki... New Caledonia having their referendum coming up in November. Mm. Uh, basically, it's 4th of November that the referendum has been already kind of like mentioned that it will carry out. Also in Bougainville, the peace agreement between the Bougainville um, uh, transitional government with Papua New Guinea, it has to end by June 2020. So, uh, and, and part of that agreement is that a referendum must take place. So it has to be between 2019 and before June 2020. So that is the issue of self-determination for the people of Bougainville is also on the table in the discussion. And we're seeing as well um, Tahiti, the French Polynesia, which they are listed in the UN decolonization list. And it is another case as well that needs to be brought up. And also other territories and colonies which um, the U.S. have and the Chile, uh, Chile has Pitcairn and also New Zealand has in few other territories. And, of course, West Papua is another case with Indonesia. And so it is still alive. And this is one of the issues that in the region, Pacific Island countries are aware that this issue is, is still relevant. And it is a contemporary issue, but it hasn't been really 
um, at the UN level, um, they're trying to suppress that. And the, the, the Decolonization Committee, or C24, are trying to move away from the, this issue of decolonization. And so Vanuatu is really taking this um, leadership in championing, especially with the case of West Papua, this week. And I believe today, Friday, um, our time here, it would be, I don't know, in terms of the U.S. time in New York, they'll be 14 hours behind. Mm. Um, Vanuatu will be addressing the U.N. General Assembly and making um, and highlighting the case of West Papua about this week's at least a um, hundred people already came out in expressing the support to the government of Vanuatu, and we're seeing the military really cracking down on those peaceful activists and students, and and that is the case. And so today as well, there's going to be another rally happening in another town in Manokwari. Mm. And they also have been happening in Jaipura and Sentani, haven't they? Yes. So in Jayapura alone, on Monday, there were 67 arrests of the peaceful action, and the actions were coordinated at various different locations. So in Santani, there were a group of um, activists staged some pro- um, like peaceful action, but some they do it in a silent, they call silent action, where they come together in a in a and then take some photos and just to show that support. And the organizing committee of the ULMWP uh, really strategized this very carefully as well. And mm. there are the other groups that are coming out to really show and just making sure the public are aware that there is a support for the ULMWP delegation and also going with the Vanuatu government. And so we saw, especially on Monday, um, two or three different locations where people were arrested. One was in Expo Wayena, mm-hmm. and then Abe, and then also in front of the University of Science and Technology in Jayapura. Mm. And so those three locations, um, 67 students were, and also the activists, were arrested. And yesterday alone, uh, 22 were arrested at this, um, the, the university whereas the other locations, the massive, full show of force by the Indonesian combined, like the security forces combined, the police, the TNI, the anti-riot squad, the anti-bomb squad, and then the intelligence and those were on their motorbikes, and they were like, I think, equivalent of one Papuan activist to ten security forces. Oh and goodness. so there was no way that the Papuans could really come out to really, you know, get at in those um, locations where they already planned to. Mm. So the only place was at the university, but that didn't take long. It was only less than five minutes when students are about to get it, and then they just rush there and grab them and then take them away. And yesterday, the interesting incident that happened was two police trucks came and picked up um, 18 students, and they took them away from Jayapura town, nowhere near any of the police stations that we heard of in Jayapura. And it was at least two hours. They were taken and detoured somewhere. Mm. So that raises an alert amongst the activists and families to find out where they were, like for at least over an hour. 
there was no com- contact, no communication, and with few of the students trying to follow the police truck, um, but they got um, distracted or stopped by the police unmarked vehicles and motorbikes, mm. which was by the intelligence. And so, yeah, we lost communication for at least um, two hours, almost two hours. And then later, um, it was found in one of these villages called Koya. And that's like, yeah, half, 45 minutes away from Jaipura town. We didn't know. And then it was followed back again into Jaipura. And they were questioned for from 3 p.m. in the afternoon until 6 p.m. late at night after 6.30. And then they were released. Yeah, that it's was just, in Jaipura. It's just torturous. It's a complete overreaction. Also, um, I think we should discuss a little bit more about this this um, question of colonialism because, you know, usually when we talk about colonialism, everybody sort of looks at Britain, which is which was the biggest colonizer and probably has a few more islands out in the Pacific and and and, and we know the Falklands, for example, as they call it, um, is still under British rule. Um, the, but the Pacific nations tend to be ignored. Um, you know, whether they're too small or whether it's just a... a, a I guess, a reflection of racism when they ignore um, people with dark skin uh, is, is, is still a question that needs to be looked at. But I know in Vanuatu, they, they not Vanuatu, in New Caledonia, the Kanaki people are facing uh, a tremendous pressure because the, Fra- the French have, um, you know, landed most of their people into, into New Caledonia, which means the Kanaki have now become um, the, the smaller population and there's a huge number of French people who obviously support the French domination of um, New Caledonia. Um, that is oppressive, uh, as we know. Um, that you just—it's it's just like you know the Palestinians and and the Jew, the Zionist um, um, strategy uh, without arms. You just take over in population, and we are the majority. We will we will decide what um, happens in New Caledonia type attitude. Um, but in terms of West Papua. Um, it's much harder because um, Indonesia has taken over the oppressor uh, role. And I'm assuming the French um, and other nations would support um, uh, Indonesia in this. Do you know anything about that? Well, um, in, sh- in, in short, the Pacific are not supporting they, Indonesia in terms of um, this their illegal occupation in West Papua. The Pacific Islands clearly knew that back in the late 50s to early 60s, was Papua was part of this movement in the Pacific, where it was the, what uh, one the pioneers in the Pacific, where the Fiji um, first prime minister um, calls it the, the, the winds of South Pacific mm. seas have changed. And so it's what he termed it as the Pacific way. Yes. And that was back in those days when the issue of decolonization was much across the globe in Africa and Asia, parts of Asia. Yes. And so um, that was part of that um, the self-determination um, struggle to fight against the colonizers or the metropolitan powers back in that region. So West Papua was pretty much a case part of the Pacific, and it was up until the early 60s when Australia's foreign policy changes with the fear of the spread of communism and the domino theory, and the U.S. applied more pressure to Australia uh, in terms of 
protecting the security uh, and interest of the of pretty much the geopolitics and geostrategic importance came into play. And so West Papua was a trade-off mm. to Indonesia, a piece Indonesia, and also we know about the case of Istimo. Mm. And that is basically as a as a buffer zone, so so that this, there is no more um, yeah that intervention coming through to Australia. And now fast forward to today, the issue like you know in Caledonia, uh, Kanaki especially. Yes, um, it is a case of white um, settler colony. Basically, yes. the French was trying to really wipe out the indigenous Kanak. Yep. However, they didn't succeed in that effort. It's like here in Australia, where with the First Nation um, mob here, and yep. they didn't succeed. And yes. so the sovereignty issue is still alive. And it was through the Malanation Spearhead Group when the formation of the, the, the MSG mm. was basically about supporting um, the case of Kanaki and yep. now the, the representative FLNKS yes. to, to Ghana that support and listed it at the UN um, C24. Yep. So the support is there, and we're seeing even in the Pacific. But Indonesia is using this narrative that they are waging peace in the region and strengthening um, the, the ocean, security of the ocean and ocean management, basically. And so they're selling this to the Pacific leaders. And so just a couple of months ago in, in August, the parliamentarians of Indonesia has established this coalition with the Pacific Island countries, what they call it like um, IPPP. So it's Indonesia's parliamentarians partnership with um, the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so basically these are the countries who are supportive of um, the West Papua's um, self-determination case. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to really bring them over and basically donate at least the Minister of um, Internal and Security Political Affairs, Wiranto, who is another general who's got blood on his hands on the of case course. of um, well known. Istimo and even in West Papua in 98, 99, mm. he, he offered $60 billion, like Australian dollars, to the Pacific in the efforts for ocean management and development. And here we know exactly the underlying reasoning, basically to silence the support the voice and the support of the Pacific leaders. Of course. And, and to buy, buy favour from the, yeah. the dominant forces like Australia and New Zealand. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. It's yeah. all in the name of security. And it's like border security, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Yep. But um, we've seen, especially at this um, UN General Assembly meeting, the Marshall Islands have came out really and reiterating they supporting the or the outcome of the original stance on the issue of West Papua, where there needs to be a constructive dialogue, yes. one, but also um, that the region has to really take that role and also the UN um, to, to really bring this, this issue at this global level, the issue of West Papua, especially at the global level. It's not an issue that Indonesia is claiming a domestic issue. It isn't. It is a regional issue, and now it is also an, an issue that needs to be highlighted at the, re, at the international level, especially in the, in the framework of um, 
decolonization and self-determination issue, which it goes across with you know what's happening with the with Western Sahara in Palestine, of course, um, and even parts of the Pacific. So yeah. that's the the bigger issue that is um really pushing that forward. And, yeah, the international and so, issues, aren't they? Indeed. Okay, Ronnie. Um, that that's a lot to cover in a few minutes, which is unfortunate. But we'll have to have another look at this as things are developing in West Papua. But for now, how can listeners support your struggle? Maybe you want to give us some details or phone numbers um, they can get in touch with. Yes. So we have the the West Papuan office in Melbourne, Atriate Collins Street, and it's down at the Docklands. And people can um, check on the website. It's the DFAIT, um, Federal Republic of West Papua office yep. on Facebook, but also there's the website. Um, ch- check that out as well as um, in terms of the West Papua, there is a sh- program as well um, at Tricia, the Voice of West Papua. It's every Tuesday between 6.30 to 7.30, and people can make contact with the, the Voice of West Papua crew because they also part of the community and also the office in Melbourne. And in that way, they can extend their support to the to the movement and support the greatest um, struggle for self-determination that is um, in this region, even here in, in, the, in, the, in Australia and also in, the, in West Papua, but also in Pacific as a whole as well. And so that is a, an issue that is really much alive in the region. Yep, and it's important so, for... Yeah. For, for Australians to support because of the role Australian government's playing in this whole scenario. And do you have any fundraisers coming up with the Orchid Band and so on? Yes, on the cultural diplomacy side of things, yes, um, Black Orchid String Band are playing at one of the festivals coming up on the 6th of October. And in October alone, on the 20, 21st of October, actually, there is this a worldwide um, Rockin' for West Papua campaign using music as a weapon. And so it is in Melbourne. Um, there is a, um event coming up. Uh, more details will be coming out on the free West Papua campaign page, um, the Black Orchid String Band uh, Facebook page, the Black Sisters, even from Estimo Soul Nation. Um, ben is playing. So this is going to be another big, amazing event. Sounds good. Bring like-minded people together in support of um, the West Papua issue. Freedom through music. I like it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so yes. much, Ronnie, to be awake on a public holiday to, to um, talk to um, Green Left Radio. And ho- let's hope that um, our listeners will lend their support to all the activities you've just mentioned. We'll, we'll try and get it on, on the uh, podcast today, actually, so people can listen to it. Thanks, Thank Ronnie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. And welcome back to Green Left Radio this morning, a public holiday. Some of you may just be sleeping. I hope that interview with Ronnie Karini woke you up. Um, a big struggle going on in West Papua and, and Kanaki and so on. So you you heard all the um, contact points he um, mentioned. Uh, of course, you can go to Facebook and, and look up all the events uh, for yourself. Now, now, we're moving on to the activist calendar part, Jacob. 
Yep. Okay, so I guess the first sort of major event is there's going to be this um, the Victorian Socialist Volunteer Briefing and Barbecue. That's this Sunday at 2pm at the Trades Hall. Um, for anyone who wants to find out a bit more about the campaign, that would probably be a good introduction. Um, on Monday, the 1st of October, there's going to be a Let Huyen Stay, um, who's a Vietnamese refugee who is facing the possibility of deportation. Um, so there's a solidarity protest at her court hearing um, at 8 30 a.m. Monday, the 1st of October, um, at 305 William Street in Melbourne. Um, and then the other thing is, yep, now I can move on to what's actually put on the page. <laughs> um, so there'll be the Palestinian Film Festival from the 4th of October to Sunday, the October the 7th. Um, and showcasing the very best of Palestinian cinema from around the globe. And so those films are happening every um, every night from the 4th October to Sunday, October the 7th. And I actually saw one of the films that's going to be screening um, at the Melbourne Film Festival, um, which is Wajib, um, I think it was The Story of a Wedding, I think that, it, but it's called Wajib, um, and it's a which was a really um, good film, and I highly recommend seeing it. And the good news about Wajib is it's not just showing at the festival; we'll have a regular run at the Cinema Nova from um, the following Thursday. Um, mm. So definitely highly recommend um, watching the film. It's quite a sort of interesting sort of um, film because it's sort of like it's very political, but it's sort of is about it's about a. Social event. Uh, yeah, social event of um, a father and his son just delivering wedding invitations to yeah. people. So yeah. it's very interesting. And now on Thursday, October the 4th, um, there'll be a public meeting, Housing in Crisis, Stop the Public Housing Sell-Offs. Um, and it's, it's basically a public meeting has been called by Public Housing Defence Network with some support from the Moreland Council to inform the community about the dire consequences of the state government's public housing renewal program. Um, so that'll be at 6.30pm Thursday the 4th of October at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, there'll be also a public meeting, Gillian Triggs um, speaking Gillian, up. Gillian Triggs. Gillian Triggs. Um, who is Gillian Triggs again? She was a former Human Rights Commissioner. Former Human Rights Commissioner. So that'll be 7pm at the Athen Theatre. Athenium Theatre, 188 Collins Street. Now that's on the same day, yes? Or the, thir- the 4th of October, which is a Thursday. Um, so there are two events. There are three events. One is a Palestinian Film Festival starting on the on the Thursday, the fourth of October, yep. and it's a public meeting. There are two public meetings. One is uh, the housing in crisis. The other one is Julian Trick speaking at the Athenaeum Theatre at Collins mm. Street. Okay, so we move on to sixth of October. Yep. So the next thing is the Diary Launch, two thousand nineteen. How to make trouble and influence people. Um, <laughs> the Diary The Diary features a radical event in Australia history for each day. Um, so yeah, that's going to be happening. That's a three CR one, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically a free CR event. Free it's CR going to be project, at, um, yes. at the old bar, seventy four to seventy six Johnson Street in Fitzroy. So on and that, it's on hosted by Ian McIntyre. Mm. Do you know who Ian McIntyre is? I don't know, but anyway, mm. um, it's it it covers Indigenous Australian resistance strikes, street art, um, convict escapes, creative. Uh, direct action, blockades, protests, and and occupations. Oh, Ian McIntyre is one of the Kuri yeah. mob. Now, just to make a correction because this what's printed there is wrong. But um, the forum political correctness um, and the far right is not happening on Tuesday. It's happening on Monday, October the eighth. Um, that oh, says Tuesday. Yeah, says it's Tuesday, just, October the eighth. For some reason, so that's going to be um, happening. Um, that's basically a book launch of Jeff Sparrow's new book, um, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. And so that's happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop um, at the Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. 
On Thursday, October the 10th, um, there'll be a film screening, Guilty, which is um, recreates the final 27 hour, 72 hours in the life of Monium. No, Sok- no, the life of Mayurun Sukumaran, Mon- who became an accomplished artist in Indonesia's death row. He was executed on the, on the 29th of April 2015. There will be a panel discussion following the, um, the exhibition, $20, Cinema Nova. Uh, it's actually a film screening. Yeah, it, it is a film screening. He, um, so it's 7 p.m. and the tickets are $20 um, at the Nova Cinema in 380 Lagon Street, Carlton. Sorry about um, interjecting there, um, Jacob. Mm. The name's hard to pronounce. It's an it's a Indian name, so I could pronounce it a bit easier. <laughs> All right, you want to do the next one? October uh, 12th? Next one is uh, Friday, October the 12th. Um, will be a rally in March, Reclaim the Night. Um, the event will highlight the Royal Commission into Family Violence, the launch of Respect Australia, and the drafting of the first gender equality bill. So it'll be happening at 5.30pm at the Treasury Gardens. Um, although it's a bit interesting that um, it's sort of themed around that and not really themed about something a bit more political, especially, yeah, it's a bit... It's a bit interesting. So yeah, to, yeah, not not. It doesn't actually keep up with what's happening with with the sort of thing, uh, uh, the accusations against Kavanaugh and you know it, the it, Me Too and also yeah, you know so the murder happening. of Veracity. That's all that. That's I think I feel from an outsider just sort of that feels like the rally should be centered on not these sort of legalistic things. But besides the point, it should hopefully be a good event to go to and definitely encourage people yeah. to attend to. Yeah, and they can demand more radical um, stuff in that sort of. Um, you know, it it it's got to express the anger and the um, an exploration of the history of oppression of women, patriarchy, really, and that's mm. what they should be looking at. But anyway, they're doing what they want to and what they can. So let's mm. hope that more people will demand stronger action around women's issues. Mm. So there'll be a film screening, Disaster Capitalism, a new documentary on that same night, a new documentary by best-selling journalist Anthony Lewisin and award-winning filmmaker um, for Narita. Narita. Yeah, that's a hard one. That's a Swedish name. Narita. <laughs> or hard to pronounce. Um, so that'll be at 7 p.m. and at the at October the 12th um, at the New International Bookshop. On Saturday, October the 13th, um, Ice Saturday, October the 13th, there's a, um, there'll be a protest, counter-rally to the March for Babies, um, which will be happening at 1pm at the Parliament House. Um, but also, more importantly, on that Saturday, if you want to show up to Geelong, there'll be a, this um, big sort of women's conference um, happening um, at the Geelong Trades Hall all day from Saturday, October the 13th. Let's mm. um, just say a little bit more about the rally at um, on the... On the, the, it's a counter-rally to the March for Babies, which is essentially it's an anti-abortion um, mob. Uh, religious beliefs that it actually is those religious beliefs in the state controlling the reproductive choices. Now, that's a radical sort of stuff we were look at, talking about before. Um, so it's back-to-back. So October 12th, we have a launch of the Respect, Victor- Respect um, Victoria, uh, which is a gender equality bill. It's a launch of it. And then on the 13th, the next day, there's a, a protest rally, a counter rally to the March for Babies, um, oppose Bernie Finn imposing his anti-abortion religious beliefs and state controlling reproductive uh, rights, rep- reproductive choices of women. So that's a, at that parliament um at Spring Street, of course. It's also on Facebook if you're looking for it. And then on Tuesday, it's the one you mentioned, 
It's a rally at uh, – no, it's not. It's a um, change to rules. Is it Tuesday, October 23rd? Yep, Tuesday to October 23rd. Um, it will be a big, massive change rules rally at 10 a.m. Okay. Um, so there was actually an ACTU delegates meeting that happened um, this Tuesday, and basically all the delegates overwhelmingly voted that they'll be participating in that rally, and there'll be a number of workplaces and unions that will be stopping work on that day to attend the rally. So it should hopefully be um, – a mass. it will be a massive rally, I'm pretty sure. The last change to rules rally. Was compu- was massive, um, so we hopefully will see the same thing here. Um, okay. Is there any more? Sorry, no, nope, that's, that's I think it. it. Okay, so let's um, have a quick break and then go on to. Um, okay, we're on the last leg of the um, program, and let's have some good news. In Newcastle, um, dozens of climate activists um, sprinted across mountains of coal, swarmed a massive coal loader, locked onto a critical part of the machine and shut down the largest coal terminal in the world in Newcastle on the 15th of September. They said, we've come here to draw attention to the fact that Australia is the largest exporter of coal in the world and we really need to step up and take responsibility for that. In New South Wales alone, um, it, it it, it, New South Wales contributes 1.2% of global carbon emissions each year in addition to its coal exports. Um, Lily, um, who's a, another one of those um, uh, protesters, said that another reason for the, the protest was the Hunter Valley is going to be hit the hardest by a transition away from coal. So this is creating a lot of um, angst among people there. And when people leave the coal industry, we want to be in the in on their terms, we want them to be leaving for the um, for something that's better, not because the price of coal plummeted and the bottom fell out of the industry and the mining companies packed up and left. So it's it's interesting that um, they have had some success in that, and um, let's hope that the um, the workers there end up trying to not trying, but they they need to succeed in getting the Andrews government to create new jobs for them. And there's plenty around. Renewable energy is one area where, where jobs being, jobs are being created all around the world. Um, so I really don't understand why the, the current government in Victoria cannot do that. Uh, shutting down of the Hazelwood mine was one of the, the, the examples where people were left high and dry. There were no alternative jobs arranged, but they just shut it down, which mm. is fine. But they, they needed a plan to transition these workers into new industry. They need training. They need to set the industry up first and then train the people to work in those industries um, and give priority to people who, who are coal miners. And that's how they should have done it, at least my personal view. Um, otherwise, you, you leave people bitter and that's how they, they turn to people like Hanson because they are not being taken care of by either mm. the AOP or the Liberal Party or the National Party. Mm. Um, so what do they do? They look at trade unions, and they're not much chop at the moment in those areas, but there are some radical views being expressed by um, um, the, um, what do you call it, the trade union um, officials, like, like I mentioned before, Daniel Wallace resigning from the AOP. Um, although it's over a different issue, but I think it all meshes into one when you look at um, the con- the consistency with which the ALP slides into supporting big business rather quietly and, um, you know, behind the scenes. They, they, they're never up there in front like the Liberal Party. They're a little bit more hypocritical about, hypocritical about how they do it. Uh, but that's that's good. So they've had, they've been able to shut it down. So, you know, the... 
So far, so far, none of that. Um, okay, one student who took part in the walk um, against the um, mine said that we have tried protesting, we have tried asking very nicely, uh, we have tried rallying for our politician to take climate action. That is through petitions and what else. We all signed petitions online, and we, you know, continue to think this is going to make a difference. And obviously, this has not happened, and it's our future, and that's. That's on the line, especially young people. Hmm. You know, they have no. I mean, if I was a young person, I'd be, I would be properly depressed, thinking, "What? What? Are they destroying this world." You know, the the, the war between countries over trade. You've got you've got hmm. pollution hitting the. I, mean, I don't know if we saw the the the, the um, documentary on China where children could not breathe. They had to go to the country to to keep the children alive. They were so sick from pollution, or their lungs were being affected. So the future generation are getting very depressed. And I would be suicidal if I was... And that's what's happening in many countries as well. You know, it's just horrible to think about it. Hmm. So that's why we have decided to put our bodies between us and the coal operations. And that's the, the view expressed by some of the young people who hmm. are the protests in Newcastle, which is great. Okay, just want to um, bring something up. Following up on the ABC stuff we were talking about before, um, there's actually... <laughs> I should have... Um, brought up this article before, but this actually just appeared at up at 4 a.m. in the morning in The Guardian. Um, but apparently there's some a bit of breaking news and a bit of an update, But um, and this actually answers one of your questions that you were sort of asking. Um, but there's apparently some exclusive documents reveal um, that The Guardian has a hold of um, that almost all of the directors of the ABC's eight-member board um, were appointed by the communications minister it's, um, well, um, themselves, yeah, um, which is interesting because there were some um, – um, what's sort of scandalous about this is some were appointed after being rejected by the merits-based um, nominations panel. Um, so that's sort of what's kind of being kind of revealed just to sort of answer a bit of the question about, um, you know, how these – how they, you know, these how a lot of this um, ABC was appointed. Yes. Ew, which is interesting. Now, um, I wanted to – it might be worth maybe spending the last – because it's such a breaking news story. It might be worth just talking quickly about the Brett, Brent Kavanagh stuff um, oh, because the committee <laughs> hearing is happening right now um, and I'm seeing some sort of live updates um, from people on Twitter about it. Um, but I guess a few – probably everyone knows the whole story of Brent Kavanagh. He's the Supreme Court nominee um, – who is just um, and some women have come forward, you know, accusing him, you know, of sexual assault, um, attempted um, assault, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think what what is interesting, what is what is quite disturbing in the Senate hearing is he's basically denying all the accusations, um, and the fact that they're having to get these women who are, who are very brave to come forward um, to Ford. Um, to to speak out in like in a com- in front of a committee of all kind of white men is just yeah quite frustrating. But the Republican team is all white men with yes. nice and suit, and they've got uh, just as a token they've got a female lawyer advising them. Mm. Whereas Democrats have a smattering of women mm. amongst them. But anyway, and the other political thing I can guess with this is the fact that Donald Trump has kind of openly defended Brent Kavanaugh. It's his appointee, of course, he's got to yeah. support him. Um, <laughs> but I, I think there's sort of, I mean, one sort of observation I could make from this is one of the, the, the most despicable things I've I think about is how there was all this sort of thing about how Brent Kavanaugh would be this great nomination from all 
both sides of the politics from the Democrats to the Republicans because he simply had this sort of air of kind of respectability um, around him. And what, I guess a kind of difference, there's actually not really much meaningful difference between someone like Donald Trump who openly says these crude, horrible things and then someone like Brent Kavanaugh that hides his sins in the past. And so, yeah, that's... Um, so the, um, it'll be interesting to see if he actually is able to get away with this, but I hope he doesn't. You know, you know what really strikes me about this, Kevin, I think? If there was a woman who was raped 30 years ago, it, it's, it's, it's very open, like in the Catholic churches where sexual abuse took place many decades ago. And if Kavanaugh was sitting judge on that issue, he would have a slightly different view, um, even if it's conservative, he he would have to hear the case in the first place, and uh, you know, based on the evidence, then he can make um, a uh, ruling. But in in this case, it seems that he is not quite happy with what's happening, and he thinks there's no evidence about any of these. All it takes is one of his gang members, the ten or so guys, who apparently it was a cultural thing in the schools. They would get a girl drunk, and while she's drunk, they'll all start raping her, and they'll line up to rape the woman. And it was called, that that sort of activity was called the lineups. And it's all it was just disgusting. And, and, and people who say that, oh, well, it was so many years ago. N- well, you know, every mm. sexual abuse, doesn't matter how many decades wo- mm. away, uh, uh, you know, before it was, needs to be attended to and needs to be addressed mm. legally and properly. And he, as a judge, should know that. Yeah. And, and, and it's also a complete injustice that someone like Brent Kavanaugh could be appointed into the highest positions of power. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what the, the American and, system and, is like. And, but what... So, sorry, um, Jacob, what mm. really annoys me even more is why should a high school event mar his appointment to uh, one of the highest offices in the USA? It's almost like our oh, boys will be boys. We will forget they're teenagers. Teenagers will be teenagers. You know, mm. We don't worry about those things, mm. even if it was rape. So what if he's murdered? You, you still say that, that same thing? Mm. You know, it's, it's equivalent to that because women who are affected by those sort of uh, rapes and molestations and, and, and so on suffer for the rest of their lives mm. and, they get, and the men get away with it. Oh, and I think, me. yeah, and politically what Brett Kavanaugh, um, uh, you know, or over um, excluding these these allegations against him, what he's politically represented here has been an anti-woman sort of anti-working oh, class to, agenda. He wants to pull apart uh, Roe versus Wade, you know, which is uh, um, which is a direct attack on on women's reproductive, reproductive um, rights. Anyway, I want to finish off on a, on a positive note. Mm. Uh, we are almost out of time. Um, for people who who are online, jump online and and. And get onto the Green Left Weekly website, and there's an interesting article I would suggest people read um, if you're interested in democracy and workers' rights and so on. It's um, it's, it's a British um, shadow chancellor, John MacDonald, has a vision for participatory economics. And I'll very quickly read this. He says, we need a new kind of public ownership which will be based on the principle that nobody knows better how to run these industries than those who spend their lives with them. So it's like 
um, nationalization, but with workers' control. That's what he's suggesting, and, and there's a full page of it. I'm sure you'll enjoy it and gi- gives you lots of food for thought. So that, that brings us to the end of the program. Um, thank you very much to Pashali Bashak for being available to us to talk about the LGBTI uh, community victory in India on the 6th of September. And, of course, Ronnie Karini, who has given us a, a very quick roundup about what's happening in the oppressive um activities of Indonesia against the West Papuans, um, thirst for liberation and freedom. Um, and we have to say, have a good weekend, a long weekend. And this is a goodbye from Lalita and um, Jacob. Mm. And just to remind people that if you want um, to listen to any of the interviews or you've missed part of the interviews, it'll be on podcast later today. So you're welcome to listen to it. It'll be available tomorrow morning. Um so have a good long, we should say, safe weekend. Mm. Okay, and let's go out with our outro. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.